if they have extra product that they're willing to sell you. So during the best times, you know, when the market is sort of uh, earliest on and there's the most demand relative to supply, you're at a uh, you're at a major, major disadvantage uh, if you only own retail, and you're also at a disadvantage if the market gets more mature uh, and you're competing with these vertically integrated operators that can afford to make less margin at retail because they're making money on the manufacturing. If you're if you only have retail. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to compete, you know, from a price perspective. This is the dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Jason Wild, chairman of Terrison. Jason, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good, good. How are you, how are you guys doing this morning? Doing well. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to uh, talking to Jason and holding down the West Coast. I think it's uh, two East Coasters we have today, eh? Yeah, Jason, for the record, your location is? I'm in uh, New York. Nice. So another East Coaster, let the record state. So Jason, usually when we start, we ask our guests how they got into the space and kind of a little background about them. But I prefer to kind of switch it up today and ask more about, take us through a week, the different hats you're wearing, the different conversations and ideas that are going through that are on your, your plate. Yeah. So in a given week, I mean, I, uh, so I run a fund uh, and spend, a, spend probably you know, a good amount of my time on, on the fund. And then our largest position is where I spend another large percentage of my time. And that's uh, uh, by being the executive chairman of Terrasen. I mean, I look at it at, you know, I look at it as uh, that it deserves, Terrasen deserves you know, 50% of my time because it's about 50% of the fund. Uh, and that's just sort of the way that it uh, that it plays out, uh, you know. On any given day, it might be uh, you know uh, more of one than the other, but I would say on the whole, that's uh, that's how I've been spending my time for the last uh, the last few weeks. And what that means in terms of working for the fund uh, is uh, talking to uh, investors, uh, working on uh, uh, bringing in some potential new investors. You know, in terms of marketing, although I probably spend a lot less time on that than most other fund managers do, um, and the, then the other time on the fund side is just uh, uh, dealing with and uh, ke- keeping up with and interacting with uh, with the management teams at, uh, at uh, you, you know the uh, the companies that uh, that we're invested in or companies that we're looking at investing in. Uh, and then as it relates to uh, Terrasend, uh, in any given day, it's going to be uh, talking uh, multiple times per day, talking to our pre- our new president and COO uh, uh, Ziad Ghanem, uh, just about you know things that are going on in any, any given day. Uh, for the last uh, five days or so, I've been actually going down and spending a couple of hours at our uh, brand new uh, or newly opened for rec dispensary in Maplewood, New Jersey, and I've actually just been like helping you know work the work uh, you know the lines and uh, and 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 help out there. Uh, and I just uh, th- that's a great way to you know see the business in action and uh, and, and you know uh, just know know a lot more about what's going on. Uh, other things that I do for TerraSend are. Uh, I'm very active on the M&A and uh, business development front in terms of talking to new companies, uh, finding new companies for us to uh, potentially acquire or or partner with. Uh, and that, there ends up being some some uh, connectivity uh, between... There's a lot of companies that, uh, that I meet through the fund. Uh, and um, if I think that they'd be an interesting uh, partner or acquisition for TerraSend, I will usually um, flip that over and, uh, you know, Sort of uh, put on my uh, my terrorist hat and see if there's something that we can that we can do there. 
Um, so it's a, a lot of it is, uh, you know, sort of uh, borders over into, uh, you know, sometimes I'm doing two things at once, I guess. I love it. So let's stay with Terrasen. Can you kind of tell us like an overview about the, the company and kind of value it brings to the space? Sure. So the company, I originally uh, invested in the company back in the end of 2017. They were actually a Canadian LP, you know, like the uh, Canopies and Tilrays of the world. Um, we led a $52 million uh, investment, private placement into the company, uh, which uh, actually um, Canopy Growth co-invested in that deal uh, with me. Uh, and I became the, uh, the chairman. This was back at the end of 17. Uh, at that point, uh, on the fund side, we were only comfortable investing in, uh, in Canada. Uh, so we assumed that uh, Terrasen would be, you know, that we would run it and just look for deals in Canada and everywhere, essentially not in the U.S. because it was illegal, uh, you know, federally in the U.S. Uh, about seven months later or so, we decided to pivot the company into the U.S. It was right when John Boehner went on the board of Acreage. And I said, you know, if they're, uh, you know, if they're going to arrest anybody, they'll, they'll arrest him before they, <laughs> before they arrest little old me. <laughs> so, so we, uh, you know, we decided to move into the U.S. Uh, our first acquisition was the Apothecarium Dispensary chain in San Francisco, which is considered uh, by many to be, you know, sort of the first of the really nice dispensaries and, and you know, out there in California, uh, and still, you know, some of the nicest dispensaries. So we acquired that uh, in the spring of nineteen. That's when essentially Terrasen entered into the uh, entered into the U.S. Uh, a few months later, we acquired one of the largest uh, operators, uh, cultivators, and manufacturers, and you know retailer uh, in uh, Pennsylvania called Ilera Healthcare. Also, around the same time or a little earlier, we had applied. Terrasen had applied for a license in New Jersey in the summer of eighteen, uh, and we actually uh, came in number one or number two by score out of one hundred fifty applicants. So we got a license for the northern uh, region of New Jersey, which is, you know, believed by many to be the best region of, of Jersey because it has the most people and the, and the biggest part of the economy. So those are the main states where we are now. Oh, in addition, uh, recently, uh, Terrasen acquired Gage Cannabis, which is one of the top operators in Michigan. And that was about a $450 million deal. So that is another uh, large, uh, you know, uh, asset of ours. You know, our approach, is, which has been different than I think uh, most of the other uh, multi-state operators, is that we decided, you know, three years ago or so that we didn't want to just uh, have lots of flags on the map and be able to say that we're in, you know, 25 states or, or 20 states. Uh, our belief was always that the, the best way to build the best business uh, is to be uh, focused and only really uh, enter a state if we think that we can be one of the top, uh, you know, two or three players in that state over, you know, some short uh, time period. Uh, and we felt that that would uh, afford us the best margins because we build more scale in less places. Uh, and also, it just give us the best chance of being uh, successful because, you know, if we're in four or five states, uh, which, you know, where we are now, uh, we're in five states, uh, and we're competing with another uh, operator that's in 15 or 20, we think that there is uh, you know, an inherent uh, uh, advantage. The other thing, the other reason we do it this way is because our view is that uh, if and when these states uh, get more competitive, especially the limited license states where, you know, where we have most of our operations, our view is that when they got more competitive, uh, there might be a price at which 
a twenty a, a grower that's only in fifteen or twenty thousand square feet of canopy, they can't turn a profit. But if we're one of the most scaled operators in the state, and we have more like you know a hundred thousand square feet of canopy, that that we will still uh, be able to have a sustainable, uh, a profitable business. That's I think that's been the main difference. Uh, we've also been you know very picky in terms of uh, acquisitions. Uh, we've stayed away from the acquisitions that are, uh, you know, like of all the other, say, multi-state operators, uh, because because that would just sort of go against the whole strategy that I that I just mentioned of trying to be focused. And our view is that we'll do best, and we'll be we'll be able to build out the map for ourselves over time. Uh, the best way by going in and trying to pick, you know, uh, from the best operators in each specific state, like more, you know, essentially uh, by uh, different single-state operators and. And we feel like that's the best way to build the strongest, uh, the strongest footprint. Yeah, I want to get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the business. So TerraSend is vertically integrated, uh, yep. meaning that it uh, operates in every sector of the supply chain, from seed to sale, if you will. So, what aspect of the cannabis supply chain do you believe your organization is the strongest at right now, Jason? Good question. I mean, you know, I look at it as you know, pretty much there's cultivation and manufacturing, and then there's retail. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, I don't want to come off sounding like uh, uh, arrogant, but I, but I, I feel like we've really focused a lot on making sure that both of those sides of the business are the strongest that that they could be, that they don't sort of depend on the other side of the business. So I mean, I think our apothecary and the dispensary chain, which is now you know we have uh, five in California and six uh, in Pennsylvania and uh, two going on three in uh, New Jersey. Uh, I think I truly believe that they are amongst the best you know dispensaries in the uh, in the country. Uh, and when it comes to cultivation and manufacturing, I feel like we are very strong there because uh, I guess we've focused on it and we really, really uh, you know uh, have a uh, we, we we place high importance upon uh, making sure that we produce the highest quality uh, flour that that we can. And that is, uh, that's easy to say. Uh, it's a lot harder to actually do. Uh, growing cannabis, uh, especially when you're trying to grow amongst the best cannabis uh, in the market, uh, it is uh, very, very difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are, you know, there's, there's tons of horror stories out there of, uh, of different grows that have had, uh, you know, different, different issues. And uh, I can tell you firsthand that it is a... Uh, it's a really tough uh, thing to do to grow, uh, you know, cannabis that sort of the, the the true connoisseurs think is great. But we think that that is the most important part of the market. In my view, like the, the 2080 rule as it applies to cannabis is 20% of the people buy, you know, 80% of the cannabis. And I would say that the majority of them are high quality, uh, you know, they're connoisseurs of high quality uh, indoor uh, flower. And that is really the consumer that we are looking to uh, appeal the most to because, uh, you know, because they're buying 80% of the product, right? So that's what we've done on the cultivation and manufacturing side. And I think that we are, we're, you know, among the uh, the best at that, but always, always looking to get better. What's your favorite portion of the supply chain? What's my favorite? I love, the, I love the cultivation side. I just love, you know, uh, I remember the first time I ever went out to a, a, a grow up in Canada back in 2014, just like the, the smells just like hitting yeah. me like a ton of bricks when I walked in. And ever since then, I still get, I mean, I go out to our uh, Jersey facility, you know, uh, I'm out there at least every week. And every time I walk in the door, I still get the same feeling when that, 
when that smell hits me in the face. So I, I love that. That's incredible. I want to yeah. stay on Jersey. I saw you say that when there was a pause between the announcement that Terrasun won the license, I want to know what that feeling was like in that pause and then what you felt emotionally after they announced yeah. Harrison. And then expanding on that, what's the, the next step? Take us inside that room. Is it how do we deploy New Jersey and get everything ready to go? Or are you focused on Maryland, Michigan, and other states for expansion opportunities? On that call, it was interesting. They had already gone through like the other six uh, operators that they approved. And the process was, I believe that the chairman would uh, state the name of the operator and say, I have a motion to approve. And then somebody would come on. It must have already been chosen who was, you know, which other commissioner would say uh, motion to approve. And then they would vote. And then they got Terrasen. And we felt really good about, uh, you know, getting approved, even if it was a smaller number than SEP, you know, ended up uh, getting there. And they said uh, the Terrasen, and uh, the chairwoman said, uh, do I have a motion uh, to approve? And nobody like said anything. And it felt to me like, you know, it must have been like, you know, 10 seconds. It felt to me like everything froze. I went through all these emotions. Uh, I was like, you know, did my line just die? You know, like I wanted somebody to jump in and say something. But then it meant, you know, at some point if they said something, then it meant that it wasn't just my phone that died, which I was almost hoping uh, was what happened. And it actually even took me to tell you the truth. You know, this, uh, you know, uh, it might be a little insight uh, uh, or, uh, you know, it feels like a little bit of a therapy session here talking about it. But it actually took me back for some reason to like high school and feeling like everybody like went out and went to the party and like they left me at, at home and I was still, uh, you know, sitting there waiting by the uh, waiting by the phone or something like that. <laughs> um, and all of that happened in 10 seconds or so. And then uh, the chairwoman repeated it again and somebody came on and said, uh, you know, I make a motion to approve. It's got to be just overwhelming joy knowing, you know, the, the types of investments that went into it, the emotional investment, and knowing that yeah. obviously the East Coast is, is a massive opportunity. And, and exactly like you're saying, if everyone else is kind of planting their flags there, that's definitely where you <laughs> want to compete. So staying on yeah. that, after, after it's approved, are you looking for other opportunities? Like take us through yeah. the strategy for sure. you and the role you play there. Yeah, absolutely. So New Jersey, I mean, what I was so excited about is that we have been spending, you know, we spent, uh, you know, about $40 million of the last, uh, over the last three years or so building out our facility. Uh, we didn't know originally that it was going to go, uh, that REC was going to be on the ballot. That was obviously a huge positive for us uh, when we, uh, when that happened a, a year and a half or so ago. Uh, and we had been ready and we thought the program was going to launch, you know, in the second half of last year. So, and, uh, you know, we were, you know, building up supply and getting it. It's like every time it got delayed, uh, even though we, you know, knew sort of intellectually, we knew that the, it was going to come at some point. It's like it almost felt like it was, it was, you know, never going to come. Or I wasn't going to believe it until it actually happened. So having, you know, having that vote uh, was just a, a huge relief. And it ended up being, it was, it was a little bit, you know, I guess better than expected because we were going to be able to launch within like, uh, uh, like after that vote, we launched, I think, like uh, eight days later or something like that. Originally, there was supposed to be a 30-day notice period, and that's when we were going to go be able to tie up all the loose ends and be able to, you know, manufacture at... You don't want to manufacture everything to be ready because if it gets delayed, then the product, you know, could expire and, and, and all the rest. So we originally thought we were going to have 30 days to, you know, run 100 miles an hour, but it ended up that it was going to be seven or eight. And, you know, uh, Ziad, our new president of the team, really uh, pulled together. Uh, they did, you know, uh, daily, uh, daily meetings about uh, uh, what they needed to do to be ready. Uh, and you know, we opened up, we opened up last week, last, uh, last Thursday. 
And awesome. it's been as you know, uh, it's been as amazing as we thought it would. We had worked on lots of uh, different scenarios, things that could go wrong, and we knew that some things would just pop up that we hadn't thought of uh, necessarily. But it actually, knock on wood, everything uh, everything went really well and came off uh, without a hitch. And I think part of it was you know, being out there, which is what's been you know so amazing, is like like I don't know who's more excited, uh, our staff out there or the uh, customers that are coming to the doors. Because it's not like, you know, on the West Coast, tons of people have already been to legal dispensaries. But on the East Coast, the majority of people have not. And you just see them, you know, they can't see into the dispensary from the outside. So you see them walking through the door and they get through the doorway and their eyes just sort of get big and they're so, uh, and they're just so excited. And everybody is, uh, like, everybody's been in a great mood. We've been able to get these, we've had long lines, but we've been able to get people, you know, through the doors. Uh, and you know, uh, pass the registers and all that really, really quickly. I mean, I think we were pumping through like, uh, you know, uh, like a thousand patients, uh, not patients. I'm, I'm still thinking of medical. A thousand uh, customers uh, uh, per day uh, at the dispensary where where I was working uh, over in over in Maplewood. So I'm going to keep. That's a huge opportunity for Terrasen because we don't have, you know, back to our strategy of not, you know, wanting to go deep. You know, that we want to go deep and not wide. We don't have a big footprint. So New Jersey, where, you know, we aim to be one of the, you know, one of the top, you know, one or two players, uh, it has so much more of an impact on our numbers. And we're so much more leveraged to Jersey than, you know, all of the other uh, uh, operators that are, that are out there. So definitely, I have definitely been focusing, uh, even after the approval, focusing a ton of my time and attention there. But, you know, like being in this business, you, gotta, you have to keep a lot of... Uh, Balls in the air, and certainly Maryland. We are building a large-scale facility uh, down there. That should be done, uh, or it should be operational at least uh, in um, you know uh, the late summer of this year. Uh, hopefully, uh, REC will be on the ballot in, in Maryland. It looks like it will be. So that could be a state that turns uh, REC, say, you know, sometime uh, next year. Uh, Pennsylvania, where we have uh, our largest current facility, uh, there is uh, a lot of talk that that will be. Uh, Going, uh, going wreck next year as well. That w- that'll be done legislatively because I think they can't do it uh, with ballot. But you still have to focus on uh, all aspects of the business, even though New Jersey is uh, now generating you know many multiples uh, uh, per day or per month uh, versus what it was under medical. You know we still uh, we still have to be able to uh, uh, pay attention to uh, to the other places, and we're still and, and, and that's what we're still we're still doing. I think. Uh, I think that it's going to be, you know, our portfolio, what, what, what excites me overall about our portfolio is that it is, um, it's sort of like, if you look at it like a uh, NBA basketball team, because we have all of these states that are medical going to uh, uh, rec. And in Michigan, we have, uh, you know, Detroit still hasn't gone, even though the state of Michigan has gone uh, rec, uh, Detroit has not. And we have, uh, we have uh, stores there. But in terms of Jersey, PA and Maryland, it's like, to me, those are those are all states that are that are medical, or in the case of Jersey, was uh, where you can uh, eat while you dream under the medical program, and you know make good money. And then when rec comes, you know your your business, you know hopefully goes up, uh, you know four or five x. So I sort of look at it as uh, our portfolio is like a team of uh, first round draft picks uh, that are uh, you know you know that they're going to have a huge future, and they're awesome now, but you know that they're going to be even better. In uh, yes. in five years, and you compare that to, you know, a lot of the other footprints of most of the other operators, they have more, uh, you know, assets or they're in more states where it's already gone wrecked, which means that you know, sort of by definition, they're already uh, the most mature uh, mature markets. So.
So um, that's uh, that's very exciting to me. Right? I feel like we have a very uh, long runway of of growth for for you know many years. So from a, a strategy standpoint, the medical dispensary uh, aspect of entering a state has to be huge from uh, managing manufacturing and production, right? Because I was just thinking of like the dialogue that goes on with the state when they're they have to tell you exactly the date that they're gonna let recreational sales uh, go through because I mean, cannabis doesn't grow overnight, right? Like you guys have right. to take weeks and weeks to grow it, to prep it, to get it tested, all these other things. So like, yeah. what is that dialogue like and how beneficial is it to be in a medical state operating to manage that uh, manufacturing aspect before it turns red? Yeah. So, I mean, I think being, you know, being in these programs under medical certainly uh, gives you a big, uh, a big, I think leg up because also in most of these states that you know they let the first ones that they let operate as as rec uh, cultivators or stores is or or the medical operators, so uh, so that's definitely the best uh, the best position to be. Uh, I mean, in terms of Jersey, I mean, we had uh, I think we had like uh, four or five thousand pounds of flour, you know, uh, in our vault waiting for uh, waiting for rent and. You know, the uh, we have gummies there. We have our Valhalla gummies, which is our California brand. We have them out in uh, in Jersey. They're actually called. Uh, we're not supposed to call them gummies. I think they are called uh, soft lozenges <laughs> under the medical program. Um, you know, but then there's the, then there's differences between like the new rec. Uh, uh, I think those could be called gummies. The new rec gummies have to have like a, an imprint of like a warning sign in the gummy. So, like, that's actually why uh, we haven't launched uh, our gummies yet, uh, because uh, you know we just got that imprint. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had to go get the mold made. I think it was made in China, uh, and I believe it's uh, at a port in, uh, in maybe in Newark or something like that, uh, being uh, taken. Uh, supposedly, it's going to get delivered today, and we'll be able to launch with our gummies. But you know, the whole thing with all of these, uh, you know, these are super complicated uh, operations and the timing is uh, has to be just right in terms of scheduling when you're uh, you know uh, production and all of that but that's what's uh, that's what's exciting to me because you know if you're uh, you know if you care more about that than your competitors do or you have you know uh, better people who are good at navigating complicated uh, processes then you know that's what gives the the better operators uh, a leg up you know, if we have, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have, uh, we're going to be launching our our concentrates line in Jersey, uh, hopefully uh, next week. So that would be live resin vapes and butters, batters and shatter and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we think we will be the first ones on the market. Uh, if we do, that will be uh, that will be huge for us because we're only going to really sell them in our own in our own stores in Jersey, and that's going to pull people from you know from all over the uh, state. Uh, those are the kind of things that. Uh, that you know, sort of get me get me excited because uh, it's just a matter of like uh, everybody doing their job the right way, uh, and you know, then things come together and put you at a at a big advantage out out in the market, especially in the you know uh, the overall the cannabis space has uh, or growth in cannabis has uh, you know slowed down a little starting last June when people started leaving the house, you know, and they had other things uh, they had other things to do other than sit at home and you know smoke weed and they had other things to spend money on. <laughs> Uh, than that, like going to you know restaurants and things like that. So in a uh, in what's not as easy of an environment as it was a year ago, uh, you know when all the companies now don't have the the you know wind uh, at their backs. You know what excites me is uh, 
when we can do things a little bit more efficiently, that's the way that you build the, the great brands. Like in my view, the great things happen when you're going through tougher times, not when everything is easy for, for everybody, if that makes sense. Right. It fuels innovation too. So staying on Maryland, right? Based on the location, is is that like a key strategic move in understanding its location to the other East Coast markets? And the demographic kind of resembles similar Pennsylvania. So is there a yeah. s- interest to speed to market to get there? Or is it more of placement in the opportunity? Can you kind of shed more light on that? So Maryland is, we bought a smaller grow. Uh, Curaleaf had to divest a, uh, a cultivation facility because they bought a grassroots and you're not allowed to have two. So we bought that. Um, it was a good deal based upon you know the revenues and profits that were coming out of it, but it was uh, not the size of you know facility. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that we always that we want to always aim to be you know the top uh, in the top uh, two or three in a market, and this facility is a smallish facility. But we got it for a good deal uh, in terms of the business it was doing, and really uh, we also looked at it like we were buying a piece of paper. That we can take and you know go out and build a much larger facility and uh, you know have it attached to that to that license, and we entered Maryland uh, last year through that acquisition with uh, cultivation and manufacturing only, not with retail. So we we were we're not we're not uh, vertic- we're not currently vertically integrated in Maryland, uh, and our view was uh, that you know there's a four dispensary cap in Maryland. Uh, in Maryland's a little bit more over dispensary than other states, like they have. Uh, I think they have like around 100 dispensaries for 6 million people. Uh, you know, compare that to Pennsylvania, where there are like, I want to say 135 dispensaries for over 12 million people. So a little more over dispensary, meaning an average dispensary does, uh, you know, probably three or 4 million in sales versus, you know, seven or eight in some other states. And we felt like we didn't need to be in a rush to get to own the dispensaries because uh, the real prize was going to be wrecked when that came. And we just felt like we wanted to be there by then. Um, so that's that's what we uh, that that was the approach we took when we entered there. We just announced a few weeks ago that we're buying our first dispensary. It's called the Allegheny Medical. It's it's cool. I hadn't really looked at the map of the U.S. I, I don't know closely, I guess, or, or understood that Maryland has a weird shape. Like the northwest corner of Maryland is like super super skinny, and that's where Allegheny Medical is. I believe it's within six miles of three different states. So if Maryland goes wreck when we think it's going to, uh, and we think that it's going to be before most of those other states that we border on, we think that that's uh, an amazing location. And we're, you know, we're in discussions on multiple other uh, dispensary acquisitions in Maryland uh, so that we can get ourselves to that, uh, that cap of four. And we think that we'll be there by the time that um, that wreck kicks in. So that was, that was the approach we took in Maryland. I guess, you know, I guess the point is, we will. We want to be vertically integrated, but you know it doesn't always work out that way. Where you can get it all in one fell swoop, and we will enter with cultivation and manufacturing first. But we will not enter with retail first because if you're a retailer in an undersupplied market, you're always going to be at a disadvantage because you're only going to get product from the uh, you know from the other the other players that are vertical if they have extra product that they're that they're willing to sell you. Yeah. Uh, so during like the during the best times, you know, when the market is sort of uh, earliest on and there's the most demand relative to supply, you're at a major disadvantage uh, if you only own retail. And you're also at a disadvantage if the market gets more mature uh, and you're competing with these vertically integrated operators that can afford to make less margin at retail because they're making it, you know, they're making money on the manufacturing. If you're if you only have retail, you know, it's really hard to compete, you know, from a price perspective. 
Yeah, and I think manufacturing can uh, create more revenue streams from like tolling and other opportunities too that totally. create a better, like a more stable business from a startup perspective. Diversified business too. Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. 100%. When the industry becomes global, do you see overseas being a challenge, let's say, for, for mass production and cultivation? No, I don't think so. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I don't think that, you know, like high quality flour, there's no, um, there's no reason to grow that or there's no cost advantage. Let, let's just talk about US. You know, people ask about, you know, interstate commerce and all that, right? And that a lot of this stuff's going to come from California. You know, that's because California has, you know, sort of perfect weather conditions and, and all of that. But there's no advantage to growing super premium indoor flour in a warehouse in California and shipping it, say, to the East Coast. So I, you know, our view uh, for, you know, and for a lot of other reasons that we think, you know, high quality premium flour uh, is the way to go. Uh, But our view on interstate commerce is that that would be the least uh, impacted uh, by, uh, you know, interstate or, you know, sort of global um, you know, commerce in, in, in the uh, in the cannabis space. I think I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, though. Where you have product coming in from from overseas. I mean, even in terms of uh, uh, pharmaceutical prescription drugs, like any controlled substances, uh, generally a need to be made in the U.S. You can ship in API or the active pharmaceutical ingredient, but uh, you can't ship in um, you know manufactured. Uh, product uh, into the U.S. And I think that that would probably uh, remain the same or, or be similar uh, if cannabis was legalized. With your pharmaceutical experience, what can cannabis operators learn from, let's say, the technology for real-time process control to, let's say, ensure a clean product to avoid recalls and other, other concepts like that in the future? Yeah, I think that overall, people from pharma, the, the, what I find about uh, when, I, when I run into or when I work with people that came out of pharma that are in the cannabis space, there's just often a, a little bit of, uh, or there's more of a focus on quality and safety. You know, like if somebody comes in from real estate or, or something like that, I find that often those companies have less of a culture of, uh, of compliance and of quality. I think that overall, there's tons of things that having, a, you know, more pharma um, experienced people uh, in cannabis uh, where, where it where it helps because these are essentially, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturing plants. It's just that they're, you know, also growing uh, live, live uh, uh, plants. Um, but there, uh, there's a ton of advantage to having people. We have, we have multiple people at, at you know, uh, at all of our facilities that came out of, uh, that came out of pharma because they just understand the science uh, uh, better. But, you know, I think that that varies from uh, uh, company to company. I have a quick question. So, Traditionally, from a manufacturing perspective, pharma has a different set of guidelines they have to follow, right? From a CGMP yep. perspective. And right. nutraceuticals kind of have their own rules that they follow. Yep. Do you think that there's going to be that hard line in cannabis from a recreational and a medicinal standpoint? Um, or do you think that they kind of should all follow the same manufacturing guidelines? Yeah, I think they'll all fall under the same guidelines for as, as long as the FDA doesn't take control of the, you know, of regulating, which, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, but in the meantime, I, th- I think that they will stay the same because, because the states are going to be the ones that are in control of the licensing. And these are the programs that they've already laid out. You know, whatever the medical program is, I mean, that was, uh, that's, you know, you're, you're following uh, uh, the state 
uh, rules. And it will, uh, my, my view is that it will remain that way in the future, even if we have uh, legalization. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? But most importantly, what did you get wrong? What did I get right? I got right that, you know, that there's huge demand for this product, that more and more people were going to be uh, consuming it uh, over time. Uh, and, you know, therefore, this industry, uh, you know, had the wind at its back from a growth perspective, especially relative to regular pharmaceuticals. Um, what I guess I got wrong was, I mean, we, we did really well in the, you know, for the first four years, we only did Canada. Uh, and my view was that that was going to be the only uh, place that would be able to attract institutional investors. And therefore, you know, the stocks would, uh, would do better than the US ones. And that worked really well over that period of time, say from like 14 to, uh, to 18. I guess I maybe in Canada, we outstayed our welcome uh, a little bit too long. Like once I, once I realized that the Canadian market and the structure of the Canadian market uh, was, you know, not conducive to being able to, you know, have a strongly profitable company, uh, I probably stayed a little bit too long. Um, but, you know, that was probably a, a mistake that we made. You know, as I mentioned, we did, uh, we did pivot into, uh, into the U.S., uh, you know, starting in, uh, in 18 and 19. And I think, you know, I think that was definitely right. I mean, it's like the U.S. is the best market in practically, you know, every, every, every market. The U.S. is, is the best in terms of uh, uh, the revenue potential and things like that. That's definitely the case. In, uh, in cannabis. And I think that, you know, the fact that we were the only Canadian LP that pivoted fully into the US, which, you know, we had a choice to make. You know, some people thought we were crazy because we were going to be giving up being able to be listed on a US exchange, you know, if we were uh, actively uh, involved in the US. But to me, you know, that was a no brainer. It's like the whole, uh, I told everybody at Paris on the first day after we made our $52 million investment a couple of years earlier uh, that, uh, the uh, I think it's a Warren Buffett quote. Uh, you know, long term the market is a voting machine, and uh, I'm sorry, short term the market is a voting machine, and long term it's a weighing machine. And the only way that we're going to get paid is if we build something you know that weighs a lot. Uh, and to me, going into the U.S., that was build, building company's weighing machine, and knowing that we can build you know the best business that we could. We're sitting here a, a year from now. What has your team accomplished? New Jersey will be a huge driver of our business one year from now. Hopefully, we have three stores that are, you know, run rating uh, in Jersey at over $40 million uh, in revenue. Uh, and, you know, we should have a strong uh, wholesale business selling to the other uh, uh, operators in the state as well. We will uh, have uh, finished our uh, expansion uh, in, in New Jersey in terms of our cultivation expansion, where we're going uh, to over double our, uh, our footprint there. So that'll be in Jersey. Maryland, you know, REC will have uh, started or be about to start and we'll have uh, completed that facility and be, uh, be fully ready to uh, be one of the top players uh, uh, there in that market. And Pennsylvania will be ready, for, uh, will be ready for, for REC as well. I mean, we have like three huge, huge drivers coming up uh, over the next year. You know, uh, Gage will, will be much larger than it is now. They've, uh, there's some amazing deals out there for small mom and pop dispensaries for like low single digit uh, uh, EBITDA multiples. So maybe Gage will be will go from seventeen dispensaries uh, right now to I don't know closer to closer to thirty or so. And the main thing is to just continue to be one of the best uh, companies in the space from from an operational uh, perspective. Uh, our view is uh, we want we, we don't necessarily want to be the biggest cannabis uh, company 
in, in the country, we want to be the best cannabis company in the country. And if we're the best, there's a good chance that uh, at some point we're going to be the biggest as well. Not necessarily by next year, but, uh, you know, but I got a, you know, I got a, like a 10 year, 10, 20 year, uh, you know, time horizon. Let's do a quick rapid fire. Product yeah. category you're most bullish on over the next five years. Flower. Psychedelics as a medicine, yay or nay? Yay. Under the radar state you have your eye on. Oof, I can't. I can't uh, if I if I talk about <laughs> it, then it might not be under the radar anymore. <laughs> but figure, you know, there's a basket of them. Figure uh, all, you know, the state sort of uh, east from Michigan going east towards New York and then up and down the, uh, the east coast. There's a bunch of good opportunities there. That's fair. What mega policy causes more disruption in the cannabis industry, federal legalization or interstate commerce? Ooh, federal legalization. That one's tough. Because I don't think interstate commerce will, interstate commerce would be phased in. If we have legalization from the people that I've spoken to, uh, interstate commerce would be phased in over you know, a three to five year period. With your experience and relationships in this space, what is one area of the industry you think, it, you think is completely untapped that eager entrepreneurs should consider to enter? Cannabis, you know, the, the technology side of, uh, of cannabis, you know, whether it's uh, you know, uh, software or, uh, or hardware in terms of growth systems, things, things like that. You know, things that... Uh, are actual, you know, major improvements and that are best in class products that, that you know, can, uh, can help the, the industry be more, uh, more profitable. The biggest misconception since you've been in the cannabinoid industry? Uh, biggest misconception just overall that like, uh, you know, I think this is all changing, but that like that people that are cannabis consumers, that they're, you know, lazy and unmotivated, you know, the people that I know that are in the cannabis industry and uh, especially the ones that are also consume cannabis, I find them to be, uh, you know, some of the hardest working, uh, you know, most, uh, you know, some of the most principled uh, people uh, that, that I've ever met and, and extremely, uh, you know, uh, creative uh, as well. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you can sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? You don't need to be in, in your job. You don't need to be a huge success within uh, one year or two years or five years. You know, it's a long road. I've been doing, you know, I've been running my fund now for 22 years. We started with it with 80 grand and, you know, we, did, we didn't hit a billion dollars in, in AUM until, you know, like 20 years later. So I think the more patient that you could be, you know, the more successful that you're going to be. And it's sort of one thing I would add to it. It's, it's sort of like, you know, don't be focused on, that you need to make a lot of money. Be focused, in, be focused on being great at whatever you're doing. And then the money is the byproduct of that. That's really well said. All right, prediction time. Jason, the cannabis industry is fighting battles across multiple fronts between banking, stigma, and regulations. What negative scenario or event keeps you up at night? Oh, what keeps me up at night? Nothing. Uh, I think things can't really be worse than they are right now in terms of... Uh, Things that uh, sort of act as roadblocks all the time, like you know, uh, you know, having to do everything within a state and uh, and all of these uh, different regulators and, and and things like that. Like we're at uh, we're at maximum uh, a maximum level of difficulty right now, and I think that I actually think think that things you know get better in the uh, in the coming years. Uh, so you know, back to what I was saying earlier about tough times uh, uh, making you stronger. There's a there's a, a quote that I had read a few weeks ago that I thought was really good. I don't know if I can get it right, but it's uh, something to the effect of uh, hard times make strong men, 
strong men make good times. Good times make uh, weak men. And weak men make hard times. Uh, and I think that we're right now in the, you know, it's, it's all a, a cycle, I guess. Uh, I think we are in the right the, the, now where it's hard times, you know, are going to make strong uh, companies. Uh, and then, you know, there should be some good times ahead, I guess, before, uh, before things get, uh, before we screw it up. But yeah, that, that over the course of 20 or 30 years, uh, I think that we're, uh, not, nothing really keeps me up at night other than just like, you know, sometimes I'm going to bed and I'm like, oh crap, I forgot to call back, you know, X, Y, Z, like just having a, a million things to do, sure. but there's nothing that keeps me up at night from a, uh, you know, anxiety point of view. Kellen? Oh, that's a tough question. I would probably say just uh, global events that deter the attention of our politicians from pushing like federal legalization and banking through from a yeah. le- uh, legislative standpoint. They have other things they're worrying about, unfortunately, right now. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with right. that. I mean, it's a, that's sort of, I don't know if that's what keeps me up at night, but it's just sort of, it makes me sad that so many uh, Americans are supportive of uh, cannabis and, and that we just can't, you know, in this country, we don't seem to be able to get anything done federally. That, that definitely makes me sad. It's crazy. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm more fearful of like another vape gate opportunity. I, I think something like that with like the negative stigma that comes with it, it it's just such a, another challenge to an industry that's kind of facing like challenges on all unprecedented levels. So concepts like that yeah. kind of give me concern because it kind of hurts the industry as a whole, even if it doesn't have anything to do with, let's say, some of the bigger operators or some of the players that are doing things the right way in the space. And I think what we need right now is less of those like uh, distraction techniques that hurt the politicians and the concepts and less of our friend Governor Rickett saying that if you legalize cannabis, it'll kill your kids and more yeah. people <laughs> like yourself, Jason, that are championing like the industry and then the positive benefits and, a, and hopefully some more of this research that comes out that allows people to kind of remove that, that stigma. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I guess the offset of that is, you know, there could be another vape gate or something like that. But I also think that there's a good chance that in the coming years, we have data start to come out that uh, about, you know, even more of the benefits of cannabis. Like, like I believe that, that, that not only is it safe for, uh, for cancer, not only is it good uh, for palliative care, but, but that I think there's going to be some studies that come out that, that show that, can, that cannabis actually has anti-cancer and anti-tumor properties. I think if we start seeing more of that data, that, uh, you know, like, like I almost feel like there's a better chance that that happens than that we have another vape gate, or I hope, I hope that's the case. Yeah. I mean, that's what the clinical trial in Israel is for, right? They, they're showing yep. that that one strain is very effective against a specific type of cancer. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. After glioblastoma, there's a study. Yeah, I was, I was trying to think of it and I was like going to fumble over it. So I'm so glad you, <laughs> you remembered the name. I was like, what was it again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a, I mean, that is like a, uh, uh, at the drug company that I, that I mentioned earlier that we sold, we had one of the only uh, approved products for glioblastoma. And because it's such an unmet need, it was the, you know, there wasn't a, a real high uh, hurdle that we had to uh, uh, get past. I think we had to show that we extended life by like, you know, 30 days or something like that, which is not the best. But the, I mean, at least what I saw, I haven't seen any data recently, which concerns me. But a couple of years ago, I saw some, some uh, the data from the phase two trial uh, that uh, was the company in the UK that got, that got sold to Jazz. I'll think of it in a second. They had a glioblastoma trial where it was like half THC, half CBD. Mm-hmm. And um, compared to the, stand, the standard of care uh, was a 350-day uh, average uh, you know, life expectancy and the cannabis arm was 550 days. 
Oh, wow. And that's, that's pretty so powerful, yeah. especially for such a tough, tough uh, type of cancer to treat. So, was that GWB? Uh, or? GW Pharma. That's who it was. Pharma. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But they've been, I've, I haven't heard much about it in a couple of years. So sometimes when that happens, it means that, uh, you know, the phase three didn't go quite like the phase two did. Uh, but yeah. we're going to, I believe we'll start to see uh, uh, other data uh, in other, uh, you know, uh, disease states that, that shows, uh, you know, the benefit, benefits as well. So Jason, for our listeners, they want to learn more and they want to try some of Terrasen's products. Where can they find them? Sure. Northern California, we have uh, three, three dispensaries in San Fran, uh, one in Berkeley and one in Capitola. Uh, in PA, we have uh, six uh, scattered. I'm not, I, I, I can't uh, uh, name all six locations, but scattered around uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in New Jersey, we have one dispensary in Phillipsburg, which is on the western edge of PA. And I, we're actually like, like less than 100 yards from the bridge that goes over to uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Nice. So amazing location for a wreck or for anybody in you know, PA that would want to come over. Uh, and uh, our other location is in uh, Maplewood. Uh, and we're going to be opening our third location in Jersey is we share the parking lot with the Bada Bing from the Sopranos. So we have very high hopes for that, uh, for that site. It gets like 220,000 vehicles per day that, that drive by and everybody knows Pretty much, you ask them if they, you know, remember the bottom being from The Sopranos and, uh, and everybody sort of uh, remembers. That'll be our third location. And then in Michigan, we have 17, uh, we have 17 dispensaries pretty much covering, you know, uh, practically the whole state. Uh, so those are our locations. Those are uh, the ones in Michigan are branded as either Gage or Cookies dispensaries. Uh, and then all the other ones are apothecariums. And we also have a Cookies dispensary that we own in Toronto. I, I visited that facility. It's an awesome facility and the people there are awesome. So appreciate oh, you taking the time. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.